Well, good evening. You guys doing okay? Everybody comfortable? I'm so happy. It's the first time I've been warm, like, like for two days. I've been working here at the church. It's a little drafty over there, and oh, it's just so nice and comfy and cozy in here. I know Jim's probably sweating, but for the rest of us, we're you know he's over there in a t-shirt. But uh, I'm just I'm just trying to wait it out till like March or April, you know. I'm not a cold weather person, just not for me. When we do missions trips to uh, Latin America and Central America, I'm just so happy, you know, because I have no problem going to the tropics and sweating for two weeks, you know, but this is uh, rough for me. So we're here. It's comfortable. We're together. God has blessed us with a place we can be safe and, and, and blessed and be in God's word. We have so much to be grateful for. We are in James in his epistle, and we are in chapter 4, verse 13. We've been in the largest section of this book. Uh, We started by talking about a faith that perseveres, and uh, then we kind of got into this section of the book, which is the majority of it, which is uh, faith that's proven. And how is faith proven? Well, in many ways, we've looked at the way that faith is proven in our lives, everything from good works to... uh, impartiality to self-control, wisdom. But this evening, we're going to talk about the fact that faith is proven in our lives through our dependence on God. And if you're like me, dependence is a bad word. You know, like I was raised to be independent. I was raised to take care of myself, and I've always been the kind of person, I think even when I was very young, that uh, would rather do it for myself. And so the idea of being dependent on anyone is very challenging. But being dependent upon God is challenging to us in a way that humbles us completely. And what we're going to see in this evening's study, and what James wants us to know, he has some warnings to those that are self-sufficient, self-important, self-indulgent, self-absorbed, and he wants to warn them and all of us who fit into those categories that unless you live your life completely dependent upon God, You're not living by faith. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we ask for you to help our unbelief and empower us and give us faith, the faith that we need to trust you in all things. This evening, as we focus in on our dependence upon you, Lord, may you show us that we can trust you, that you are trustworthy, and that we'll do so much better depending on you than living independent of you or dependent on ourselves or anyone else. Lord, we want to live our lives in such a way that the world looks at our lives and sees the faith that we have and that our faith is proven because we truly do depend on you for everything from the air we breathe to the money in our pockets to the jobs that we go to in the morning to everything that takes place in our lives. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's look at the first few verses here. And in uh, chapter 4, verse 13, well, I'm going to read verses 13 through 17. And this is the section that deals with James's warning to the self-sufficient and the self-important. Self-sufficiency, depending on yourself. Self-important, thinking that you're the center of the universe. People that tend to be self-sufficient also think of themselves a little bit more highly than they ought to, and so we call that self-important. And here's what we read in verses 13 through 17. Now listen, James says, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. And anyone, then, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Pretty severe warning. James doesn't pull punches. You know, it's funny. You can sometimes read someone's writings and come to the conclusion that they're, that they're difficult. You know, there are some people that, you know, you read their books or you read their writings, and I'm sure James fits into this category. Uh, You think, gosh, I wouldn't want to have to have coffee with this guy. You know, don't be just hearers, but 
doers of the word. He always seems to have a very sharp rebuke. And yet, you'll find that many times people that in the Spirit speak very strongly with rebuke and correction, oftentimes they're perfectly lovely people. They're not always walking around pointing the finger. You know, I, I often had an impression of certain pastors, I won't mention which ones by name, but I always had this sort of impression of them, if I ever met them, they would be really mean. <laughs> and then you meet them and you realize they're not mean, they're just direct. But doesn't the world cry out right now for direct teaching? I mean, there are a lot of people out there sort of beating around the bush. They're just kind of like trying to say it in a nice way. And there's some things that just can't be said nicely. And they don't need to be said nicely. They need to be said directly, truthfully. And what James says is that you can't be a Christian, have faith in God, and be self-sufficient and self-important. You have to depend on God. You need to live your life for him, through him, and by him. And when you do that, your life is truly not your own. You know, as I realized, <clears throat> I was just talking about this, I guess it was last night, some friends, and uh, realizing that, you know, I mean, if I had my way, that was sort of the way I started the conversation, if it were up to me, is what I said, I'd be doing this or that. And the truth is, I would. But I was thanking God because, and I was just mentioning to, this to Michelle today as, as well as we were in the car. You know, there was, there was a, a point in my life where I, I said, I started in my company at 20, was there for 20 years. But before the Lord called me into ministry, my plan was, I'm going to work till I'm 55. I happen to be 55 now. But I was going to work till I was 55, 35 years in, retire, not retire, retire, but just resign, retire, and do something else with my life. Well, in the, in, in the intervening years, 15 years ago or so, uh, the Lord called me into ministry full-time, and that all changed. But I was planning on, like, maybe after 35 years in the corporate world, maybe, like, go back to doing weddings and playing in a wedding band, you know, as a wedding singer back in the 80s, sort of recapture that former glory, you know. And I was thinking about it as I was sharing with the guys. I said, good thing I didn't do that because I'd be out of work right now. Ain't nobody hiring wedding bands. Musicians don't have any work to do. And so I thought about that. I thought, you know, it is really better to let God make those kinds of decisions. And indeed, I have. I have. But if it were up to me or had I had my options, I would have done things completely different in my life. A, a different approach different decisions, but at a certain point as a Christian, I made this decision to live my life according to God's will. And that changed everything, including leaving that very profitable wedding band that I was in, making all kinds of money, and, you know, stepping away from some of the things that I did that I enjoyed, not because I didn't enjoy them or because they were sinful, but because they started to get in the way of what God had called me to do. So, Hearing someone speak into your life like James is speaking into our lives is a good thing. It's the truth in love. And here we see in the verse, just the first verse here, that he specifically addresses those that live their lives without any regard for the will of God. Now, people in the world, they just make their decisions. They just do it. Oh, we're moving. We're going here. We're going there. We're, we're, you know what? We're going to open up this business. We're going to buy this car. We're going to buy this home. And they don't pray. What's prayer? You know, their idea of a prayer is, God bless this food. God bless my decision. God bless us as we do this. But anyone who truly has faith in God knows that the prayer looks something like this. Lord, is this what you want us to do? Should I even be looking into this? Lord, I'm not going to do anything unless you lead me. You guide me. I'm not just going to look for your confirmation. I'm going to look for your direction. That's a very different type of person. By the way, that's a person of faith. A person of faith isn't the person that has so much faith that they make a decision and say, well, I have enough faith to believe that God will stop me if I'm doing the wrong thing. That's presumption. Presumption. That's very different than faith. And so here, he identifies the fact that they do this without any regard for the will of God. They make their plans based solely on their own wants and desires. And that's how all of us lived before we came to Christ. Look what it says in verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. 
It's just, there's no regard for the will of God. These people decide when they will do something, where they will go, how long they will be there. They decide what they will do while they're there. That's just not how people of faith live. We ask God to lead us. In fact, these people believe that they're the ones in control of their lives. That's a very frightening thought. In fact, one of the most comforting things that I can think about in my life is to know that I'm not in control of my life and the major decisions of my life. One of the most comforting things I say to myself is, this is God's church, not mine. One of the the most comforting things I say in my own life is, this isn't my life, this is God's life. I've given my life to him. And I have peace because I have surrendered my heart. But in verse 14, we see that these individuals that we're talking about, they believe they're in control of their lives. Verse 14 tells us that, or he says to them, why... You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And by the way, there's not one person here that knows what will happen tomorrow. The way our world is, anything you can imagine would fall short of what could possibly happen tomorrow. Right? And we read on, it says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Don't, don't think of yourself too highly. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, like a cloud that blows by. He's putting it in perspective, and not that we're not important to God, but in yourself, of yourself, you're nothing. You're nothing. And and I'm nothing. We're nothing. So these individuals, they really do believe that they're in control, and the illusion of that control, it deceives them into thinking that they can predict the future. Well, we're going to get into this business because we did all the statistics. We, we know exactly what the market share is, and we're going to be successful. And you know what? Many times, very smart people with entrepreneurial skill are successful. But how do you measure success? By making a lot of money or by obeying God? Because that's what's at stake here. These types of individuals have no concept of how truly insignificant they are apart from Christ. And they refuse to submit their plans to the Lord first, and then, of course, surrender to his will. Some people are afraid to surrender because they may not like what God wants them to do with their lives. You know, speaking of the cold, back in 1987, it was February of 1987, but it was a little bit before that, that I was at a Tuesday night Bible study in Hasbrook Heights where Harvest Christian Fellowship had one of their midweek studies. It's a study that I attended and uh, shortly after two weeks, gave my life to Christ. And I was there, and I had given my life to Christ about a year earlier, not quite. And uh, it was getting closer to February, and I heard everybody talking about this missions trip to Alaska in February. And I distinctly remember, I think I might have even said it under my breath. Huh, Alaska in February, I'd never do that. And uh, I already explained I hate the cold, right? So I remember saying that, and the minute it came out of my mouth, I realized something, that I wasn't surrendered to God. Now, I'm still struggling with surrendering areas of my life to God, but this area in my life I knew wasn't surrendered to God, that I wouldn't uh, go if the Lord called me to go. So I did the craziest thing I could think of. I said, well, God, I would never go, but if you wanted me to go, I would go. And I didn't hear the Lord's audible voice. I've never heard, I hear people say that, and being the New Jersey skeptic that I am, I I don't think they really mean what they say. I I don't know that anybody hears his audible voice. I've never heard it audibly. Maybe you have, and you're more spiritual than I am then, because I have never heard the Lord speak out loud. But I hear him speak to my heart all the time. And I think that's kind of what they mean. Like when people say, he literally did this. Well, I kind of think that's what people mean, because I know when God is speaking to my heart, I know... Almost always it's something I either don't want to hear or he's asking me to do something I wouldn't do. Because who else would be telling me to do that? Wouldn't be me. So I said it, and as soon as I said that, I I felt the Lord speak to my spirit, my heart, and say, you're going to Alaska in February. And I was like, what? I had never even flown on a plane. I had never been anywhere. 
I, really, I think the furthest I had been away from home was south was North Carolina. North was Massachusetts, Rhode Island. I'd never really been much of anywhere. I'd even been past Pennsylvania. And now the Lord is calling me to surrender my heart to go to the one place I would never go in February, right? And I said it, and I went up to the pastor because I feel like I had to sign the deal. And I actually was hoping he would say, ah, you know, even if you wanted to go, the trip is all booked. You know, you can't go. I figured that's what was going to happen. God was just testing me. It's kind of like one of those Abraham Isaac things. So I went up to the pastor and I said, you know, uh, I think the Lord is speaking to me about going with you guys to Alaska. The guy that our pastor was talking to was the travel agent booking the flights. He went out into the hall. For young people, there was this thing they call the payphone. They don't exist anymore. But he went out to the hall and he got on a payphone. And before I knew it, I had given my credit card information. I was booked to go to Alaska in February. Now, the irony is that we had a cold snap back here in New Jersey, and it was warmer in Alaska, in Anchorage, Alaska, than it was in New Jersey in February of 87. And I had a great trip. It was life-changing. Transformed my life for ministry, and I realized immediately that God had called me to serve him with my whole life. Now, what if I had said no? Or what if I hadn't said, well, Lord, if if you wanted me to go, I don't want to go, but if you want me to go, I'll go. What if? I I always think to myself, well, I proved my faith by just surrendering that option. Now, he could have said, you don't have to go. But that was my call at that time in that area of my life. And, you know, the guy that mentored me went on that trip. Several guys who later became pastors went on that trip. My, my, my pastor heard me play guitar around the campfire and said, wow, you should be leading worship. That happened on that trip. So much happened on that trip. My life would have been completely different if I didn't go. I just shared that testimony because when you're in control of your own life, you're really limiting what God wants to do. You really are. So my advice, personal experience, would be surrender your life. Be willing, at least willing, to go and to do whatever God wants you to do and, and, or wherever he wants you to go. The same was true when Pastor Joe asked me about going to Cuba. I took the same approach. Lord, if you want me to go to Cuba, I'll go to Cuba. In October of 2004, I went to Cuba. Same with El Salvador. Same with Guatemala. I just kept saying, Lord, wherever you want to go. We were in New York. We were happy there. Lord, if you want me to plant the church in New Jersey, we'll go to New Jersey. Well, here we are. See, all of those types of things come out of your life when you say, Lord, if it's your will, do whatever you want according to your will. And that's, I guess, what I'm getting to right now. So, verse 15 says it this, says it this way, excuse me. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or or that. I don't really think it's that complicated. It's not a scientific formula. You just say, Lord... You know my heart. You know what I would do. But not my will. Bless you. Your will be done. Not my will. Your will be done. Very simple, actually. And then he specifically, James specifically addresses those that live their lives as if the world revolves around them. That's self-importance. Look at verses 16 through 17. As it is, you boast and brag all such boasting is evil. And anyone then who knows the good... You ought to do and doesn't do its sins. You know, it's really, really important that, that we are not guilty of making everything all about ourselves and our success. People will oftentimes just make decisions based on whether or not they'll be successful. Like, for example, you get offered a promotion at work. Most people, 90%, I'll say it this way, of Christians will just assume that that's God's blessing. They, they won't assume that maybe, maybe God isn't calling them to take that promotion. They don't even ask the question many times. Oh, praise the Lord. Pastor, can I get up in front of the church and give a testimony? I got a promotion. They never stop to ask, what does that mean? Well, you'll have to work on Sundays. Oh, we'll never see you again. Oh, oh, you know what? You have to work late at night. You're not going to see your kids or put them to bed. You'll make more money, but you're going to work a lot more hours. 
You know, there came a point in my life where I knew I was already at this point called to ministry, and I had a review coming up, a performance appraisal, and I went into my boss and to my manager, and again, I knew I was up for a promotion. I knew what was going to happen within the next year. I knew the position they were probably going to give me. Starting to move in the direction of management, and at this point, ministry was really starting to open up for me. I was getting busier and busier, and the job was good, but I, I really didn't want to work more than 40 hours a week, and I knew if I took a position, I would have to. So I prayed, and I asked, Lord, what do you want me to do? He made me, <laughs> I didn't want to, write a manifesto in my performance appraisal explaining to my manager how I was the least best candidate for management because God had called me to ministry and I wouldn't be able to work more than 40 hours a week, but that I was super committed to my job and to the company, but that I knew my limitations and I was hoping that I would still have opportunities to prove my abilities. Whole manifesto, like a whole page long. Guess what? I never got promoted. Why? Because God made that clear. I'm just sharing some of these things, you know, in my life at this point, I'm looking back and I'm realizing, thank God I did some of these things. But listen, there have been many places where I failed. It's not like every time I got it right. So as I look at this, I realize, you know, promotions, things like that, just don't assume because it sounds like success. It's God's will. People like this are guilty of making everything all about themselves and their successes. And that's how they gauge whether it's God. You can't do that. God may call you to sacrifice. This is worldly behavior, clearly not appropriate for Christians. We're called to a life of love, and love does not boast. Or have we forgotten 1 Corinthians chapter 13? So these individuals were were, were guilty of that because they just assumed if it was good for them, it was God's will. What happens when God calls you to something that's not, quote-unquote, success by the world standards. Not good for you, but better for others. By the way, leaving my corporate job after 20 years in the, in the truth of the spirit was better for me. But at the time, it seemed like it was really not. I was going to make less money. I was going to lose prestige, my accomplishments, all those things that I thought were so important, which weren't important at all. If I were going to make those decisions based on what was good for me, you wouldn't be listening and I wouldn't be talking here tonight. Just telling you. So those things are important to remember. Also, these individuals are guilty of not doing for others what they should be doing. And I think a lot of times when we make decisions, it's based on what's good for us. So we don't take into consideration that if I sacrifice and, and maybe don't take that position or don't take that, that opportunity just because it's good for me and I'll be able to boast and brag, hey, wait a minute, what's going to happen to others? Is it good for others? Think about the person that's called to Sunday school teaching. God has called you. He's given a vision in your life to teach the children. And then all of a sudden that promotion comes up and it means you're not going to be here on Sunday. What do you just write it off and say, well, you know, I guess it's God because my family needs more money and we're going to make more money? No, your faith is proven through dependence on God. Your faith isn't proven by taking the promotion. Your faith is proven by you saying, no, 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 God has called me to teach the kids, and if this job requires me working on a Sunday, sorry, not interested. That's when your faith is proven. I I know that makes sense. It's a lot harder to do. Trust me, I know. It's a lot harder to do. And one of the reasons I got out of the band, one of the reasons, mostly because God was calling me, but one of the reasons is because I couldn't make it out on Sundays. I was out till 3 or 4 in the morning every Saturday night. And the church was in the city, and I knew God was calling me to be in church, so I, I, I had to. wasn't crazy about the idea. So these things are very personal to me. And uh, I heard the Lord's voice much in the tone of the, book of the of book of James that we're reading tonight. So these individuals, they were guilty of not doing for others what they should be doing. For it says in verse 17, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. So you sin when God says, I would like for you to do this, and you say no. That's sin. That's rebellion against God and his plan for your life. And it's not a matter of sin because you're doing a sinful thing. It's just God is calling you and you're rejecting his call. You know what's so sad? I've seen people, talented gifted, anointed people miss out on God's best. Why? Because they knew the good that they ought to do, but they didn't do it. I'd hate to see that in anyone's life. 
You see, there are sins that we commit by our actions, but there are also sins that we commit by our inactions, not doing what we're supposed to do. And that's what James makes clear. And this is a strong encouragement to put this counsel into practice. Oh, I can't implore you more than this. Just, just be submitted to God. Surrender to God. That's what this whole section is about. Not boasting about tomorrow. Not thinking of tomorrow as an opportunity for you to succeed. But thinking of tomorrow in terms of surrender to God, where you go, oh, when you go, how long you'll be there, what, what you'll do when you're there. Those, types, those are the types of questions God needs to answer for you. Amen? Submit your plans to him and surrender to his will. Okay, well, the second group of people, or second thing we're going to talk about this evening, has to do with the self-indulgent and self-absorbed. It's similar, but a little different. Because once you give in to some of those issues of self-importance, or being self-sufficient, once you make a little bit of money, you're doing pretty well, it becomes even more difficult to surrender to God. Because, listen, we all like stuff. We all like nice things. One of the things I told myself when I was making pretty good money in the world was, don't spend too much, because one day, I knew I was called to ministry, so one day, you're not going to be able to live like that, so better you live the way you're going to live now so you don't feel like you're missing out when it's time to leave. They call that living below your means. Not above your means. Below your means. A lot of people, you know, they can afford the lease on the car, so now they're spending hundreds of dollars a month for a car. And my attitude is I don't like to buy things or pay for things that I can't afford or that I don't need to afford. So I've said this before. Do, do I like German cars? Actually, let's not even go that far. Do I like the Cadillac XT4? Did I go to the Cadillac dealership a year ago and sit in one? I did. Did I say to myself on the way out of the dealership, this is a nice car? Did I say I'd look good in it? Did I say I, I like this? Yeah, oh, I went through the whole thing. I even talked to myself. I like the XT5, the XT4 is so much nicer. But then, like everything, I just surrendered to the Lord, and I said, Lord, what will you have me to do? So I bought a Buick Encore GX, which is basically the same idea, just not as ostentatious nor as much money. And by the way, I like it. It's great. I got nothing to complain about. It gets me where I got to go. But those are the kinds of decisions you make when you surrender to the Lord. That's what I'm, I'm just putting it out there practically to you today, because I, I don't want you to think I'm not the guy that likes the Cadillac, because I do. But at the end of the day, I do take those decisions to Christ and I ask him to show me what to do. And sometimes, you know what? I don't like the answer I get. Just like you. But in the end, I look back and I say, oh, Lord, thank you for leading me in the way everlasting. I have no regrets. But at the moment, my flesh has to be surrendered. So self-indulgence, what is that? It's like taking good care of yourself. We're not talking about self-care because that's something that's very important, especially during these days. We're talking about taking a little bit more care of yourself than you should. Self-indulgence. And self-absorbed means that everything you do, you know, it's all about you. So here's what he says. He, he specifically addresses those that live lives of material wealth. And I want to be clear here. The thing that made material worth, wealth especially evil in those days was that it was made at the expense of others. Even today, if we're going to be honest... People that make millions and billions generally, not always, generally make that money at someone else's expense. The head of corporations make it at the expense of their workers, right? I mean, like people who are in sales make more money when they make more money off of individuals, right? I mean, let's be honest here for a minute. Generally, I know there are exceptions, but generally, the person that's wealthy is someone that's gotten wealthy and that money came from someone else. Okay? You may have inherited that money. You might have invested very well in the stock market. That's a different story. You may have worked really hard and earned that money yourself. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that's bad. But the kind of wealth and wealthy that we're talking about in the first century are people that made their money because they, they took advantage of others. And that's still true to some degree today. And so we read James 
giving this warning, specifically addressing those that live lives of material wealth at the expense of others, says in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you, and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. That's pretty harsh. Now again, remember that the wealthy people he's addressing were not just wealthy, but abusive, and took advantage of people. And again, that's a general assumption, but that's the case. A wealthy person that was generous, no one would say that to. This is directed at those people who are wealthy at the expense of others. Now, when we think about that, when we, when we kind of absorb what James just said, remember that this is the fourth and by far the strongest rebuke James has for rich people in this book. You could see that James had an axe to grind with people who are wealthy and didn't look to the needs of others. And that's the key. If you're wealthy and you look to the needs of others, who could say anything bad about a person that gives their money away? No one. I know some very, very wealthy people, and they are some of the most generous people I know. And I don't think we're talking about them this evening. But I also know some wealthy people that are pretty stingy. You know, um, you know, when it talks about that silver and the gold, this is hard for me because I was an investment accountant. I was a project manager. I know the market. I play the market. I've invested in the market. I've done exceptionally well just because I know what I'm doing over the years, you know, long-term investing, retirement, that kind of stuff. But again, I was in, I was in the financial services industry. I, I knew what to do. And, and, you know, the things like precious metals, I was looking at the price of silver and, you know, I'm realizing, gosh, you know, I knew that price was going up a couple of years ago. I acted on it, but I, I could have I could have, like, really gone for it. Like, I could have made a major investment in silver. And you know why I didn't? Because I kept thinking about verses like this. Just because I can double my wealth doesn't mean I should. See, that's a very important thing. Sometimes people say, yeah, but then you can give 10% to the church or even more. That, you can't justify. You have to ask the Lord. If you're going to make a major investment, you say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this money? Just, oh, but if I invested, I know the silver market's going up double in the next year. Let me put it all in the silver. And they justify it. What if God had something else for you to do with that money like that investment in others? And now you can't because you locked it up in precious metals. I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in things like that. Yes. But how much? How often? And to what extent? I don't want to be embarrassed when I stand before the throne of God and I say, Lord, I left a lot behind. For my heirs, you know. I didn't invest it in the kingdom because I invested it in my heirs. Well, that's not what God has called me to do. So yes, I, to, to a certain modest degree, I take advantage of things that I see and, and make money. But, but that's not the obsession of my life. The obsession of my life is preaching the gospel. And I'm glad that, you know, and I say this because God has been good to us. You know, I started, let's see, 2005 I came on staff here full time. I didn't even want to. I wanted to keep working, but, you know, the Lord called me. And I'll just share this, you know, personal testimony. And Dr. Eddie's one of our trustees here. He's the treasurer. He knows I haven't taken a raise in, what is that, 15 years? I could have. I don't want to. I don't need to. God's been good to us. Now, our health insurance goes up, so in a way, I guess I get a raise. Why am I sharing this with you? Because faith is proven by dependence on God. It's not proven through taking good care of yourself. That's such an important principle, especially for you young people. Adopt that principle now in your life, because I wasn't always 55. There was a time where I was 25. And I was living this way, and God has been so good to us, we've never owed a dime since we got married, except for our mortgage, which we paid off early. These are sound principles for life. You don't have to be a genius to put them into practice. You just have to be obedient and dependent upon God. And I pray you all will hear that. Because I want you to be prosperous and successful, and so does the Lord. And by prosperous, I mean your needs are met. Amen? So this fourth and strongest rebuke of James 
for the uh, rich, he makes a, a, a really strong point here. See, our lives and our riches on earth are only temporary. They're uncertain, as he said in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he made it clear that wealthy people were causing so many problems in the church. And wealthy people do cause problems many times. And then in chapter 4, we saw that choosing the world and its desires, he called that spiritual adultery. So James had no problem saying these things. And they would be held accountable for how they obtained their wealth. And I think that's the real issue. How do you obtain your wealth? You see, if I were to invest in, let's say, the silver market or the gold market or the platinum market, and I took that money out of money I could use for ministry and missions and giving, and I put it into there, um, then in a way, you know, how am I obtaining my wealth? By sacrificing my ability to give. See, I'm held accountable for those things. And so are you. And when he says, well, did you see that? It's kind of pretty strong rebuke. He says, listen, you rich people, weep and wail. The word for wail in Greek, to wail, is oloizo. And it actually is onomatopoetic. That is, it sounds like what it is. It sounds like a wail. Like, I don't know if I can do it justice, like, oh, anamana, anamato poetic. And you see, he's writing in this way, he's saying, you guys are going to be howling and wailing and crying out when the opportunity to invest in the kingdom of God is gone. Don't be found in that way. It carries the very meaning of what he's saying in its sound. They had become rich by oppressing the less fortunate, like Paul said to Timothy. And not all of the wealthy were guilty, but unfortunately mostly were. If you want a good example of the wealthy, look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. When men and women came and sold their property and gave it to the poor. They took lands that they had that they didn't need and they sold and they used that money. Did they put it in the silver market? No, they put it into the lives of people. They met the needs of the poor, and there were poor people with legitimate needs in the church. These weren't people who were afraid to work or were looking to game the system. They, they were needy. And these people said, how can we sit here in fellowship with our brothers and sisters? And I have a field over there that I make a ton of money on, but if I sold it, could feed seven families in the church for the next three years. So they did that. They sold their fields. They sold their land. They took the money. They gave it to the apostles, and they fed the poor. And there's a great example there in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. You see, these individuals that were not listening to the voice of the Lord, they're placing more value on earthly riches than heavenly riches, and that's what it comes down to. What do you think is more important? The earthly riches that last for a little while, that you only get to enjoy while you're here? You know... I'm updating my will. I was talking to uh, Pastor Sal because he's an attorney, you know, and I had my last will was like in 2008. So I need to update it. Just being responsible, right? And, you know, with all of this COVID stuff, you know, you start to think, you know, I should probably make some changes and everything. And uh, when you look at those things, you think about the future, you think, I don't really care about any of these things. These are just earthly things. But to be responsible rather than just leave a big pile of stuff for someone to sort out. Let me just at least make it clear what's supposed to happen. But, you know, my, the value I place on those things isn't, I know they're not coming with me. They're not that important to me. Spiritual riches are far more important to me. And uh, that's what God cultivates in our hearts as we surrender to him. And again, I don't want to present myself as like, I'm the guy. Believe me, I've struggled through this even today. I'm not saying I got this all wired. I'm just sharing with you the lessons I've learned, some the hard way. Like the year that it took me to, to leave the band because I didn't want to give it up. And during that year, a lot of things didn't happen in my life. So uh, sometimes we have a difficulty trusting God. But as we read in uh, red, I should say in verses 2 through 3, your wealth is rotted. That, that is, whatever you have, it's not going to last. Moths have eaten your clothes. You know, you go to 
a really nice store and you buy a really nice sweater and then you put it in the closet and then the, the winter passes and it sits around in the spring and then you go to it and it's got holes in it because the moths have eaten it. It still happens today. Your gold and silver are corroded. See, even precious metals will corrode and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire because you've hoarded wealth. It says that you have hoarded wealth in the last days. We don't want to hoard wealth ever, but especially now in these last days. See, earthly riches will perish, and they'll obtain no eternal value. The goods, that is when they say your wealth, that word is actually, um, in that day, your goods were like your food stores, your wheat, your barley, your grains. Uh, So when he says it's rotted, you know, you can go to the store, you can go to Trader Joe's and spend $200, but if you don't eat the fruit and the vegetables, you're going to be throwing them out because they rot, even in the fridge. And the same is true for stores of grain. So here you have all this food. You could be feeding so many people, but because you've got this silo filled with grain, it ends up rotting when it could have fed people. That, that's the, the understanding that James has when he speaks in this way. The goods rot quickly. The garments are easily eaten by moths, and even precious metals will ultimately corrode in the last days, according to Peter in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. And God would hold them accountable. He'll hold us all accountable for wasting wealth and prosperity on ourselves when we have more than we need. They were hoarding for their earthly future at a time of great spiritual opportunity. And this is also a sarcastic reference to the worthless treasures they had gathered. They were just worthless trinkets, treasures. Jesus made it very clear to us that this is extremely foolish, and your homework is Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, where you have that rich old fool who thought he could build bigger barns, but then his soul was required that very night. Well, finally, in verses 4 through 6, he specifically addresses those that live lives of material comfort at the ex- by exploiting others. There's a lot of people that, that have a whole lot because they take advantage of others. And here's what we read in verses 4 through 6. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. That is a very harsh rebuke. But it was true then and perhaps true today that there are those who live lives of material comfort by exploiting others. They were guilty of shortchanging their workers and ignoring their pleas for fairness. See, these poor people, they'd work hard and they just said, we just want a fair wage. Now, I'm not necessarily for the same wage in every part of the country. I'm not. I think that if you live in New York or you live in New Jersey versus another state like Arkansas or Mississippi, you probably need to make more here than there. When I used to get raises, there was a a chart, a matrix, and based on what geographic region you were in, you made more money because the cost of living was greater. Now, that makes sense to me. A national wage doesn't make sense to me. But I do think that there are a lot of people who are getting taken advantage of, especially in companies. There used to be a time in my company where you could look for like somewhere 8 to 10% raise. The company was doing phenomenal. You did phenomenal. You got these profit-sharing checks of 4 and 5%. And all of a sudden, these guys started making gazillions of dollars. And nobody got profit-sharing. And if you did, it was like 1% or 2%. And guess what? The culture of the, of, of the company changed. People didn't care. People who had worked there for 20, 30 years said, oh, they got a better deal across the street. I'm out of here. I really think that there's a problem in our country, and capitalism can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing, especially it's a bad thing when those that have a lot don't pay their workers appropriately. Can I hear an amen? I'm not preaching communism. I'm preaching fairness, just fairness. You see, they were guilty of shortchanging their workers and ignoring their pleas for fairness. And God would hold them accountable for the wages they owed to their workers. Now, it was common practice in that day to pay your laborers each day. You gave them a daily wage so that they could feed their family that day. And some of these landowners wouldn't pay them each day. Oh, I'll pay you at the end of the week when I sell the grain. Meanwhile, that worker 
might starve, he and his family wouldn't eat for three days. And it was the law, it was God's law, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Proverbs, Jeremiah, Malachi, all talk about paying your workers fairly and paying them on time. It was the law. And so these workers appealed to the Lord, and and now the Lord would intervene on their behalf. And I pray the Lord would intervene on behalf of those that are being cheated out of good wages because others like to make way more money than they could ever, ever spend. Sad, really. You know, capitalism worked in our country when those who were wealthy understood their responsibilities for their workers and for society. In England, uh, my wife and I like to watch a lot of period pieces and period dramas. You know, I think of Downton Abbey. Um, There are a lot of these great houses in England. And people say, oh, it's such opulent living. And yet those landowners hired hundreds of workers. It was like they owned a company, and the people that worked, the servants and the land workers and everyone who worked there, were just happy to have a job, be well taken care of. And so in a sense, the wealthy person understood their responsibility to take care of the workers. It was a system that some people think of as unfair, but it actually, if you were on either side of that, you understood, if I have, I have a responsibility. If I don't have, I have an opportunity. And I'm not saying it's the best system in the world. I'm just saying that when the wealthy understand their responsibility, the system works in capitalism. And then what happened is they raised the taxes after the First World War, and these wealthy landowners couldn't really afford their homes, and so they fired their workers and didn't harvest their fields. And then, of course, the economy tanked. So you see, you've got to think about these things. If you're into economics, you know what I'm talking about. But it all works when the wealthy take care of those who are not wealthy. You know, what do you think people did before Social Security and welfare? Because that's only like, like 100 years, maybe not even, 100 years old. Not even. So what happened? People took care of one another. That's how it's supposed to work. It should still work that way. It's a great system if you have morality at, it, at the center. Take away the morality. Take away the, the, the godliness. And what you have is an abusive, corrupt system. And there you go. That's enough governmental uh, political philosophy for tonight. But it was the law. It was common practice to do this. And they weren't doing right by their workers. In fact, it says in verse 5, and we've read it already, I believe, it says, uh, you have lived on on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, and you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. And that's a very interesting way of saying what he's trying to communicate here. They were guilty of living an opulent lifestyle when others were Desperately needy. Desperately needy. And I'm very fortunate to live in a very nice neighborhood, in a very small home, in a very nice neighborhood. Praise God. But, you know, when I look at some of the homes around me, and I realize two people live in those homes, sometimes three, a dog, maybe a cat, a bird. <laughs> you know, when I, when, I, when I think about that, these are huge homes. I've been in some of these large homes And you know what? I ask myself the question, like, what's up with this? Also, there are some immigrant families that buy those large homes and like seven families live in them. See, that makes a whole lot more sense to me. But, you know, when I look at this, I realize, you know what? We need to be challenged in America. We do. We do. You see, these individuals, their lives were focused on their high standard of living and their possessions. Their lives were filled with excess, overindulgence, overeating, and obesity. And that's what it means when we read those words, indulgent. Remember in verse 5 it says, luxury and self-indulgence? It really implies obesity. That is, you have so much food. Oh, does that sound familiar? You know, they talk about the problems with obesity in the United States, and it's self-indulgence. It's not, really, it's not obesity is not the problem. It's self-indulgence, right? You don't wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm obese. How did that happen? I went to bed. I was fine. I was watching Netflix, fell asleep on the couch, and now I'm obese. I'm morbidly obese. That's not how it works. It's self-indulgence, which leads to obesity. And so that's why that word is appropriately translated there, obesity. So as we look at this, if your life is filled with excess, overindulgence, overeating, obesity, chances are this word is for you tonight. The word luxury is the soft living, the soft living that breaks men down and destroys their morality. 
That's the definition of the Greek word for luxury. The soft living that breaks men down and destroys their morality. Self-indulgence can be translated as to live for your own comfort and to satisfy your lusts and your desires. And he describes them as fattened calves. And there was only one reason you fattened a calf and gave it more than it could possibly eat. And it was so you could slaughter it for a feast. And so he's saying, you guys are like fattened calves ready for the slaughter when God's judgment comes. Very strong language. Like I said, you might think twice before having coffee with a guy that writes like this, right? You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter, the day of feasting. And it goes on to say, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. And that last verse tells us something sad. They were responsible for the deaths of the innocent through action and inaction. Because like it or not, despite what Cain said to God regarding his brother Abel, we are our brothers, our sisters' keepers. We are to be responsible. Or did you forget that word, love your neighbor as yourself? You see, they condemned men and women to die by forcing them to work harder than they needed to work. They murdered men by not paying them fairly and by taking advantage of them. It was their responsibility as wealthy people to care for their workers and their families, and they didn't. They shrugged that responsibility. And according to the Lord, they would be held accountable by him for their many sins. And so we read of this warning. But we also know that if you're going to say you have faith, then that faith is going to be proven not on how successful you are, but on how dependent upon God you are. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's a difficult word. It's a tough sermon, but... Our flesh needs to hear it, and we know we need to hear it. And maybe, maybe these words don't really describe us in the, in the way that they describe the people living in the time that James wrote, but I'm sure all of us took something away this evening that we can change. If, if nothing else, just surrendering our lives and our hearts to you. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Give us faith. Give us the strength to surrender our lives to you and to follow through by living our lives for you and for others. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.